All right, so we, um, we're continuing on now with our uh, study through the book of Acts. And, you know, like I said, when we've started this, I have two purposes for this. You know, we, we're turning five, five years old. What do we want to be when we grow up as a church? And it seems to me the best thing to be is the church that we see in the book of Acts. The problem is I don't know of a single church in America that even remotely resembles the church we see in the book of Acts. And I'm wondering why and what's going on. It's, that's always in the back of my mind as I'm reading all these things. And sometimes my sermons get distracted because of that. We're going to talk today about deception and why it's such uh, a dangerous thing for us and how easy it is to work in our lives. But before I get there, I have a story to tell you. Uh, in fact, I've told you part of this story before. This is the story you know, everybody wonders, how, did it, how in the world did I you know, get this wife? Uh, well, she's from Ukraine. How do we meet? We've been to that, that part of the story. Uh, I'm getting to the next part of the story. How do we get her into the country? Uh, so in order to do that, we got something called a K-1 visa. That's a, that's a fiancé visa. That means she comes to America for the purpose of marrying me. That's it. She either marries me or goes home. That's how I got her to marry me, if you want to know. Uh, so uh, so we, she had 90 days to make up her mind. I think we did it in two weeks, but she had 90 days to make up her mind and go running back to Ukraine. But Everything was done through paperwork. It was about seven months worth of paperwork. INS, worst organization. They make IRS look like pussycats. The INS was miserable because I had no say in it, really, because it really wasn't with me. It was with her, and she was a foreign you know, person, and so that she didn't have any of the rights an American has. It was crazy. Anyway, after seven months of struggle, we finally get the K-1 visa. Yay, now she can come here. Not yet. She has to go through something called an exit interview first. Now, that has to be done at a U.S. consulate. At the time, Ukraine didn't have one. So the nearest U.S. consulate was Warsaw, Poland. Now, I don't know if you guys remember your Eastern European map, but those ain't close. I mean, it's like, not like, well, it's just like going to Philadelphia. No, 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 no. She was on a train all night, like 12 or 16 hours or something, to travel from Ukraine to, um, in fact, she had, you left from Kiev, right? So first you had to travel to Kiev, and then you had to travel on through. So 12, 16 hours, something like that, on the train. Stas, if you can picture him, he was 10 and a half years old, so skinny people gave him food for free. Uh, not, that's a true story. Uh, and, and he actually had a, a, a cold uh, when he was here. Now, she thinks she's going to have an exit interview. They're going to stamp the visa okay, and then she can leave, right, and fly to America. But there's no guarantee on that. The guy has discretion to say, oh, we think you're scamming the U.S. government. No sale. And then she'd have to go back, and we'd have to file more paperwork. So she said goodbye to everybody she knows. She's packed up everything she had in suitcases, including her jewelry, which was a trick because uh, in those days, Ukraine was worried about art uh, things being smuggled out of the country. And so you could only take the jewelry you were wearing. You, if you had like a jewelry box, they would confiscate it. So she got real creative on how she wore her jewelry in her hair and stuff, you know, just in order to get out. So she gets there. Now, I can't really help her at all when she gets to Warsaw because, you know, as far as the interview goes, because I'm not allowed to coach her. You know, they'll separate us. I'm not allowed to be in the same room with her when she has her interview. That's made clear to me. And they're saying, yeah, really, there's no reason for you to go. I thought, well, I think there's a reason for me to go. I don't want her going through this ordeal without me. So I flew to Warsaw, Poland. This is actually a picture that's taken of us by Stas in Warsaw. And you can see how we look, yeah, jet lagged and all that. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's where this takes place. Uh, the problem was I was living in Texas at the time. This is December 10th. Now, I don't have any winter clothes. I live in Texas. Uh, I have a 
big black leather coat that I had bought a couple years before when I traveled to Russia on a trip, and that's it. Other than that, I have jeans and sneakers and driving gloves, you know. But I jump on a plane, and I show up, and it is zero degrees in Warsaw, Poland, and I am freezing. My wife sees me, you know, like, hi, honey. She looks at me, and she goes, oh, my God. Even if we get through this, he's going to die of pneumonia before I can marry him. This is, you know, who dresses this kid? Uh, so we get there, and I get an apartment for us. Uh, and we don't know how long we're going to be there, so I get it for a whole week. I reserve it for a whole week, and we go there. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever been in an Eastern European apartment, but let me tell you, it's really great because you don't need thermostats there. You don't need thermostats because you don't get to determine the temperature in your apartment. That's determined by whomever owns the building. They decide how much heat or air conditioning, they don't have air conditioning, how much heat you need. So it was zero degrees outside, and our owner decided we need 50 degrees worth of heat because that's how, that's how warm it was in our apartment. Uh, there was one, it was radiator heat, there was one radiator that really worked. It was in the back bedroom. We gave that to staff because he had a fever. Uh, that one worked great. In fact, you couldn't shut it off. His room was like 87 degrees. We had to lift open the window just to get that down to 87. It was like a sauna in that room. And every other room, 50 degrees. <laughs> Whether you need it or not, there are 50 degrees. There was two rooms in the place that saved my life. Uh, we have the kitchen, and you can't see, but right here there's an electric stove, and I would sit by that stove, you know, and get my fingers to work again. And that was great. But the best part was this bathtub. And the bathtubs in Europe are wonderful. They're these big long, deep things. I mean, I, it's, it's cut off there, but it's actually long enough that I could lay down in, and like, man, we had hot water, and I would pour the hottest water I could in there, and I would climb in that thing just to take the chill out of my bones, you know, because I wasn't used to that. You know, you have coldness here, sure, but you go into a nice warm place and warm up. <laughs> no, 50 degrees doesn't warm you up very much when you're freezing. So that's how we're living, but we're going to be there, and I'm trying to get them excited about coming to America, so of course you decorate it, you know, you put up things that matter. You put up a little tiny flag, a little American flag, maybe some postcards of Texas, you know, had a terrible tile to show them. They had no idea what that was, but this is important, you know. You put these things up, but you're still in an apartment in Warsaw. You know, you can put the terrible tile up, and you can put the, the Texas flag and the American flag up, but you are still in an apartment in Warsaw, and that was very clear every time you talked and saw your breath, right? So we were there. We had some tokens of American America there, but we were basically in Warsaw. So the next day, we had her appointment. Now, she had a scheduled appointment. It was scheduled at 9 a.m. at the U.S. consulate. So I'm thinking, okay, cool. We'll get there about 10 till. She said, no, we need to get there like 7.30. I said, 7.30? I can't even imagine standing out. It's not going to be open. We'll be standing outside at 7.30, me and my sneakers. I, I don't know. We're not doing that. We compromised, and we showed up at 8.30 in the morning. We left, we left Stas behind because he was sick, and he just stayed there playing computer games. We trekked down to the U.S. Embassy, and you roll up to the U.S. Embassy, and it's got these gets gate up in this security area out front by the gate. You go through there and they check your luggage and everything, make sure you don't have any cut. This is pre-9-11, but uh, no, that's not true. It's right after. So anyway, but, but you, you go through there and they check you for everything. But we don't go into the building because I'm nobody, you know, and she's the one who actually has the appointment and she's not a U.S. citizen. So we don't go through the building. We go around the building. Our doorway that we're supposed to enter is around two sides, down at the end, go down the stairs, they tell us you'll see a sign. That's where you'll go in. Well, okay. Wasn't what I was expecting, but that's not too bad. You know, that's a walk I can handle, you know. So we start our walk. So we go, and we turn the bend, and we can't see the door because there's a line of people who've been there since 7.30 in the morning in front of us. Right? And that's when I realized that 9 a.m. was kind of a general guideline of when your appointment was going to be, everybody's appointment was at 9 a.m. And we had a line of people, like 50, 60 deep. And so I'm standing there, and you know, it's not even 9 yet. I'm 
stamping my feet and I'm putting my arms inside my coat, you know, and I'm trying to stay positive. And Victoria's, are you okay? You don't have to say, no, I'll stay, I'll stay. You know, I'll probably die, but I'll stay, I'll stay. At 9 a.m., they turn on all the lights. You know, there's kind of a general cheer, you know, from the, from the huddled masses there. And uh, a guy opens up the door and steps out and says, uh, we're going to be taking you in the order you arrived here. Please don't push. Everybody will get in, but we'll bring in as many as we can at a time and we'll call you. And, and, and we'll, we'll do it. We'll be right with you. And then, you know, door shuts and he goes away. And like, well, that wasn't good. No one moved. You know, the line hasn't moved at all. And suddenly a loudspeaker goes on and says, excuse me, sir, sir. And everybody's looking around, you know, you in the leather coat. Oh, me? Oh, yeah, me. He says, um, are you an American citizen? Yes, I am. It must have been the sneakers were the dead giveaway because, you know, the Polish people know how to dress. I said, yes, yes, I am. Sir, you need to stand in the right line, please. Well, we're on this, um, this sidewalk, and there's a yellow line that goes down the middle of it, and we're all on the left side. There's not a single person on the right-hand side, but I need to stay in the right line, which there is no right line. You know? So Victoria and I step out of line, and we start walking all the way up to the door. You know? And we can feel the daggers being stared at us from all the people who've been there since 7.30 in the morning. But it's about to get worse, because as soon as we get there, there's a buzz, the door opens, and the American says, hey, come on in. And we walk straight in, right? And everybody's looking like, who is this guy? And why does he get to go first? And the answer to that question is, I'm an American, and that's my home. Because according to international law, I was on American soil. See, there were Polish people waiting to get in to America. I'm an American. I was, I was home. I was more home there, legally, than I was in my Polish apartment. And as I was thinking about that whole experience, you know, I thought, that's what's wrong with the church. The church is something that's American. And we have Christian artifacts in us to remind us of heaven. We have a cross, you know, we'll have scriptures up. We'll play music from K-Love or whatever. But we're still an American building that has Christian or heavenly artifacts. What God wants is an embassy for heaven. And that's where, we, that's where somehow we've missed all that. And it's not just the church. It's our homes too. It's our lives. God meant to set up embassies where holy ground stood. And when you step on that, you're literally stepping into heaven. We're supposed to be an embassy for heaven, but we're not. And, and we've hyphenated ourselves. We're not Christians. We're American Christians. And I think that's really the problem because God wants to open embassies for heaven in our lives. And he wants us to have a place where holy ground stands. And that's where we we're supposed to be, and that's not where we are. So um, the thing is, we need to understand this goes beyond just the church. It's easy to criticize the church for not being that, and, and we should, because we should be that. But also, it goes beyond that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Like You are supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, it is, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. It's like your body should be holy ground. It should be an embassy for heaven. In uh, John 14, Jesus says this, Look, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit again. The world won't be able to receive and not, e not even see him or know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we are all supposed to be embassies of heaven. And when two or three are gathered together, he's in our midst, right? That's what we're supposed to be. That's not what we are. And I think that the problem is that we think deception is evil, so we can't be deceived because we know evil. But actually, deception always begins 
with something that seems good. You can't deceive something that's evil. If you fish, you know, you don't throw a tin can in the water with a worm on it and hope to catch something. You have a lure. You have something that looks good that can draw that fish to you. You can't just, you know, I'll just throw a box of cereal in there. That'll bring them. No, you have to have something that they want. Deception always begins with something that seems good. And I believe that what's happened is that we have believed something that's not true. Most Christians I know, and believe me, I've said this before, I'm preaching to me first and you're just overhearing it, but uh, most Christians I know believe this. I am saved by the blood of God. I am American by the grace of God. God has put me on the greatest country on earth, possibly the greatest country the earth has ever known. So I will be thankful to him, hashtag blessed, I will be thankful to him, but I'm going to live the American dream while being thankful to God that I can live the American dream. God didn't put you on earth to live the American dream. He put you on earth to open an embassy for heaven with your life. And what we're supposed to be seeking is heavenly purpose, not the American dream. But we don't want that. I just kind of want to experience the American dream. I like it here. I kind of like that. I want to move back into that apartment that has artifacts of heaven, but I don't want heaven here. I'll visit heaven and I'll come back here because I want to continue to live the American dream. And there's a lot of things that we've bought into as part of the American dream that kind of got mixed in with our Christianity. You know, I've said before, you know, when Jesus says, you know, you need, you need to salt the world and, and the salt can't lose its flavor, it's useless. There's no way the salt can lose flavor. You can't do anything to salt to make it lose flavor. I don't know if you knew that. You can't break it up. You can't, you can't boil it. You can't add fire to it. You can't add cold to it. There's nothing you can do that makes salt lose its flavor. But every cook knows how to make salt less salty. You add things into it. You know, if you're cooking, oh, that's too salty. You mix something else in. And I believe that's what's happened to us. We've mixed other things in with our Christianity. And what we have now is not authentic Christianity. It's a hyphenate Christianity. And we believe some of these things, and then we'll bring them into our Christianity. Let me give you one of them. And I could go all day on just this. I won't. I'll stop here because I know we need to get into the book of Acts. You may have seen this. You can do anything in your life if you only believe in yourself. I can go into everybody's nursery and find a kid's book that says this. It's every Disney movie everywhere, starting with Pinocchio and leading all the way up to Frozen. This is taught to us as kids. I remember when um, Emily was seven years old, I was tucking her to bed one night, and she says to me, out of the blue, she goes, I'm going to be an orca trainer, because we've been to SeaWorld. She loved that. I'm going to be an orca trainer. I said, okay, honey. You know, she says, that's my dream, Dad. I said, okay. She says, and you can't make me give up my dream. Now, to, to let you know what kind of a father she had, her father replied this, oh, honey, you don't have to give up your dream till you're 30. It's okay, you know? <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that, but that was, she's getting us because of all the movies she saw and everything. This is what we teach our kids. If you believe in yourself, you can achieve anything. It doesn't stop there. Go watch, you know, The Voice, America's Got Talent, or the unfortunately named American Idol. Watch those things, right? And watch it, because always like after one of the first ver rounds or some long shot that wasn't supposed to make it, but they somehow make it past the judges and they're crying. And the little tiny person runs up with a microphone, tell me, what does this mean to you right now? And they stick the microphone in their face, right? And they're always crying. Well, this is for the children. I just want you to know that if this can happen in my life, it can happen in yours. If you believe in yourself and you don't give up your dream, this can happen for you too. The funny thing is that's not the winner. That's the person who gets eliminated next week. They never go back for the follow-up interview. I've always wished they would. Tell me, last week it was about achieving your dream. What's your message for children this week? You know, crickets. What is the message? It's better to have a good voice than a good dream? I'm not sure, but you, know, you just got eliminated. You know, please exit stage left. 
there comes a time when we realize this isn't working for us. It works for some people. You know, Sidney Crosby always wanted to be a hockey player, and he is. But not everybody has the dream that matches the skill set that they can do, go and do what they want to do. A lot of times, uh, the kids find out they're just not very good at hockey. And sometime around high school, they realize, I can't do that anymore. It's just not working for me. But we hate to give that dream up, don't we? We want to believe that because we love those movies. Because it isn't just Disney. All of Hollywood's teaching us that stuff. They're teaching us songs about wishing on stars and if you only believe. And I mean, this is part of our culture. If you believe. But then something happens, you know. You may, you may have to give up on it as an adult, you know, when I can't just achieve anything. Nothing. There are some things that just seem to be impossible in my life. But then you become a Christian. And it comes back in a new form with God all things are possible. See, you might not have the skill, but God does. And now that comes back. We've just tweaked it. So now we say everything's possible with God. You know, I may not be able to achieve all things, but God can achieve all things. And then we trot out verses in the Bible which seem to support this, like Psalm 37.4, one of the favorite verses of most Christians. This one's on coffee mugs and on posters. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't this scripture say, doesn't say right there that if I delight myself in the Lord, which basically means coming to church occasionally and singing occasionally, I delight myself in the Lord, that he's going to give me whatever my little heart desires. Isn't that what this verse means? No, it's not what it means at all. What it means is the psalmist is, is acknowledging the fact that desires often pull us aside. He said, if you delight yourself in the Lord, even your desires will be from God. He will put in your heart his desires. That's what he's saying here. It's absolutely not what they want. Or we'll see this one, Matthew 17. There's a lot of versions of this. Matthew 17, 20. Jesus says to them, because of your little faith, you couldn't do this. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which is really, really small, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Right? And he'll ask him, he adds this thing, in my name. And I think we just don't understand what in Jesus' name really means. We think of Jesus' name as a thing you throw on the end of your sermon, I mean, at the end of your prayer. You know, whatever you pray, whatever you pray, just say, in Jesus' name at the end, and he has to do it. That's kind of how I was taught. That's, what, that's not really what in Jesus' name means. And we know that's not because we know this isn't true either. It can't even be true. Let me give you an example. This is a, just going to stretch your imaginations, but suppose the Steelers go to the Super Bowl this year. I told you, just stretch your imagination. Suppose they make it. And this is going to really stretch it. Suppose when they get there, they meet the Dallas Cowboys, the hated Dallas Cowboys, right? And we get together at the church, and we thought, you know, the perfect number is seven. So uh, we should all pray for the next Super Bowl victory for the Steelers. And we all get together. We fast. We pray. We gather here in a vigil. And by the way, this isn't so far-fetched. There are churches that do that. <laughs> but, and, and so we all, we all pray for a Steeler victory. And, and because we know if we have enough faith, God's going to make it happen. You know, that's much more important than whatever Ben Roethlisberger is doing in the huddle. It's our faith and our prayer. So let's go ahead and let's pray that prayer so that they will win. The problem is over in Texas, there's this church called Gateway Church, and they think the Dallas Cowboys should win the game. And they believe too. And they're gathering and they're praying. And there's 20,000 of them. It's a mega church. Now, if it's just measuring faith, I don't care how much we have and how little they have. 20,000 is a lot of people praying against us. What's God going to do? Is that how Super Bowls get decided by whoever prays the best prayer? Is that how it happens? See, I hope not. I'm really hoping that somewhere God says, you know, I'm going to do what's best. 
You can pray, but I'm ultimately going to do what's best. In fact, he kind of hints this in Isaiah 55. He says, look, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But we want to say, no, no, God, the best thing you can do is answering my prayer. I just believe it. I believe that my prayer is right. And if you answer my prayer, everything will be better. You need to listen to me because I thought this through heavily. We don't have any idea what we're asking God most of the time. I'm not saying don't pray for a seal or victory. Go ahead. I'm not saying don't pray for good weather. If we have an outdoor event like we did, go ahead. I'm saying that God does things based on things we don't see. And that might be hard for us to understand, but we have to understand that's who God is. And we have to start walking away from this idea that whatever I want is best for the world. Because that's all part of what we have here built into our Christianity. And all we need to do is convince God that what we want is really the best. And, and, and it's ridiculous. We're trying to tell the immortal, uh, invincible, omniscient God what is best. We, uh, we got rained out. It was just last week at, rain, at, at Praise Fest. It was our second rain out. Our first was a complete total rain out. Uh, and then last week, we got somewhat rained out, right? Uh, we actually got a bit of a concert put on, about two and one-third acts got on before we finally had to give up. Before that happened, we got equipment completely soaked by the rain, uh, you know, trucks pulling away, kind of working with a makeshift setup. And thank God for those of you who actually showed up. Um, but man, I'll tell you what, it was, you had to really be determined to come here because you're in mud out there listening to this. And, and last year, we had about 150 more people than we had this year. Now, we were praying for a bigger event than the year before. And we had 150 less people there. God, what are you doing? All we want to do is have a concert to lift up your name and praise your name. Why wouldn't you support this very clearly Christian activity that's all good for you? And if we brought up more people, and more people have heard your name being praised, and you said if you're lifted up, all men will be drawn unto you, some people might have gotten saved. Why couldn't you cooperate with us here in our great endeavor called Praise Fest 2018? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe God wanted to find out if we'd praise him in the rain. Maybe God's saying, you know, I know anybody can praise me when the sun's shining. Will you praise me in the rain? Will you praise me in the mud? You know, maybe sometimes when you grow up, he's just calling you to greater faith. I want to know where your heart is really in this. Is it only, am I only God when it's sun's shining? I don't know. I don't know why it didn't rain. I was one of the ones out there getting soaked. So, I'm, you know, I'm with some of you. I don't know. But I know that at some point we have to trust that God knows what's best, and we have to let him do what's best. And if we're ever going to get to an authentic Christianity, we have to learn to really just lean into that. God, I want what you want. It's a heart thing because deception starts in the heart, right? So um, the other thing that I want to say is that deception always comes at a price. And that's what I want to show you now. And this is the dangerous thing about deception because I know some people say, well, I'll just be a little deceived. <laughs> that's not how deception works, by the way. You can't get a little deceived. I'll be deceived for a while. I'm going to go out the American dream for now and I'll come back later. You know, I'm just going to go do what I want to do and God will forgive me later when I'm older. By the way, in case you're wondering, let me tell you, because some of you are young, older is 25 years older than what you are right now. I could go around the room and ask, and everybody say, what's old to you? You'd say, the 20-year-olds would say, whoa, 45 is old. I go to the 45-year-old, how old's old? Oh, well, maybe like a 70-year-old or something. You know, it's always about 25, some as little as 20, but the average is 25 years older than you is old in your mind, right? That's half a generation, that's why. But the point is that that's a moving target, isn't it? If I'm 20, I say, well, when I'm old, well, when you're 30, that moved. 
When you're 40, it moved again, you know? That's why most of the church is made up of women who are 65 plus, you know, because they finally say, well, I guess I'm old, I'll come back to church. And, and, but you have to understand that when you live this life, you're living a life of deception. You've bought into a lie. You're trying to be a Christian and you're not really going all in with God. And, and you've kind of got this strange Christianity that fails you at some times and you don't understand why. And it's because you've got this stuff mixed in with it. And he gets this angry God. It, some people lose their faith. And it's like, God's like, I, I never told you that. Why are you holding me accountable to, to your rules? I'm above that. All right, so let me show you a guy in the Bible who, uh, in the book of Acts, who is greatly deceived. He's a good guy. He's a really good guy. He's just totally deceived. I'm picking up some, some stuff we skipped over, so don't, don't panic. We're back in Acts 7, and we'll just zip through. Uh, uh, so what happened was Stephen preached this sermon. It was an amazing sermon. In fact, Stephen was so great at it, he glowed like an angel. And that made him even more mad because look at this guy. He's clearly telling the truth. We need to shut him up before everybody hears him. They screamed. They rushed at him. The Bible says they shouted loudly so they couldn't hear him anymore because he was making way too much sense. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And they lay their coats at the feet of a young man. Why don't you catch that young man named Saul? When he's in the movies, he's always old. If you notice that, Saul's always like this 55-year-old guy or something and got the gray beard and things. He was a young man. He was a young Pharisee. His name was Saul. And I guess I didn't do this last night. Let me just say, Saul becomes Paul. Not here, but Saul will become Paul. I say that because I will flip back and forth between the names. Apparently, I did that last night. Um, it's the same person. So Saul was young when this whole thing started. Now, watch what the Bible says next. And Saul approved of their killing him. Have you ever seen a movie that portrayed someone getting beaten to death? I mean, that's a weird thing to ask in a church, but I have. I have a hard time with it. There's some things that's very difficult for me to watch. That's one of them. I can't even hear it. You know, some TV shows and stuff, especially on HBO, they'll ha that'll happen. You know, somebody did like a, a mob movie or something, they just beat this guy to death. And they do it in gory detail. I mean, I find myself putting it on mute and, like, you know, trying to fast forward past it. It's hard for me to watch. To hear that is just really sickening. I want you to picture that, though. And here's Saul, this young Pharisee, watching a man be beat to death with stones, and he's sitting there thinking, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's what we need. What kind of a monster can do that? What kind of a monster can watch somebody be beat to death, not for anything they did wrong, for preaching, beat to death by the mob and say, I, I think that's a good idea. Someone who's deceived, that's who. Deception will let you do all kinds of things. If you're deceived, you end up doing things you'll never believe. There are things right now that you may say, I would never do that. But if you're deceived, the devil can make you do anything. If you're deceived, the devil has you. And he could drive you into doing absolutely anything. How do you think good Christians got in their carriages and went to church and on the way past their fields where slaves were working, they waved and they went on to church and they thanked God for their freedom? How is that even possible? How is it possible for good Christians to leave church on Sunday and attend a Nazi party rally in Germany on Friday. How's that even possible? Deception kicks in. When you're deceived, you believe, the devil can make you believe, do anything because you believe you're right. That's what's scary. The lie you tell to yourself becomes the truth you tell to everybody else. When you're deceived, it's really, really dangerous because you will do and you will say things. I've, I've met people who were deceived and talked to them and then later the, something happened in their lives and you know, Usually something very rough happened in our life to break up the, the deception, you know. I wish I could tell you it was my prayers for them, but it wasn't. And then you talk to them later, and you tell them things they said to you, 
and they don't even believe you. It's like, you almost need to record or show them. No, you said that. No, I never said such a thing. Yes, you did. Just you were in the throes of deception. Now, let me, let me tell us a little bit about Saul. We don't know much about his early days, but we can extrapolate from what we know about him later. First of all, he is brilliant. He's probably the second smartest mind in the Bible after Jesus Christ. He's brilliant. He sees things. He's a fast-rising star in the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees kind of get blasted a lot in the Bible, and rightly so. Jesus calls them things like vipers. But the Pharisees were all very, very, very smart. The Pharisees was a meritocracy. You got in by your ability. Not the Sadducees. They bought their way in. But the Pharisees, it was their ability. And when he was rising up the ranks, that means he was one of the best. And by the way, Paul tells you that he was the best. He has no problem telling you I was the best, right? But he was. He was just that smart. He was that good. He could draw things. He, he had the first five books of the Bible. Figure about, think about this. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Leviticus is in there. I can't even pronounce the names in Leviticus. He had them memorized. He could go back in his mind through the Leviticus lineage to, to answer a legal question about the Bible. That's just a brilliant mind, right? He was very, very smart. We also know he didn't have very good people skills. He doesn't get along with people, even when he becomes a Christian. Because he's a zealot, you know? I don't know if you've ever met a zealot. They're hard to get along with, because there's no, there's no joking with them. There's no gray. It's black. It's white. Always on. You know, they can be difficult. And that's who he was. But man, he found his place when he joined the temple. He may have had a tough childhood because it's hard to be a know-it-all when you're 12, you know. People don't like you so much. But when he joined the temple, man, he found his place. And he was moving up the ranks, and there was a, there was a system to move up the ranks. And he was moving up the ranks. He was doing everything right. He loved the Lord. He loved Jehovah. He loved the law. He loved the temple. He loved Israel. Things that we would say is, that's good. He wasn't a bad person, but he was deceived. And here's what deceived him. The temple that has embraced me is the temple that needs to stay. So this temple became about him. Because that's what we do when we get deceived. Make it about us. The temple was never about Saul or anybody else. The temple was always about the God who was supposed to inhabit it. And they, that's why Jesus got so mad at him. He said, this is supposed to be my home. This is supposed to be the embassy of heaven. People are supposed to walk here, and they're supposed to stand on holy ground, and they're supposed to hear from the high, mighty God in heaven. And you've made it all about men. You've twisted this whole thing around. But Paul bought the deception. And that's how he could take a look at Stephen being killed and say that was a good idea. Do you know why? Because this whole Christianity thing was threatening to upset the whole temple. Not just the teaching. Who was teaching? It was started by a carpenter, for crying out loud. He never went to school. He didn't study under a rabbi. He just starts preaching one day. And then after they kill him, the guy takes over It's a fisherman. This is not good if you have worked your way up in a meritocracy and you have an advanced degree in theology to see those people starting a movement that everybody's going to and flocking to. So they tried everything. First, they threatened Peter and John. Hey, shut up or we're going to have to do something. They said, well, we can't shut up, so go ahead and do it. They let them go, baffled. They bring them back the next time. They beat them. They have them beaten and sent back out. And more people come. So they keep trying things. Nothing's stopping it. It just keeps growing. So, okay, we got the idea. We'll kill them. If we kill them, we'll scare people. We'll scare them. And so they split up and they went all kinds of different directions. And Paul's like, yeah, this is what we have to do. We have to kill these guys. We've got to eradicate them because they're a threat to God's holy temple. Well, it wasn't God's temple. But this was the deception that he was in. No one ever starts out planning to be deceived. You understand that? 
They just end up there because they start following their desires and they start trying to make their desires holy. There are so many Christians who are trying to do their will in God's name. God, if you just please bless me. It's like Abraham standing in front of God and God says, well, I'm going to give you a son because I don't need a son. Just bless Ishmael. I've already got one, sort of. Right? God says, that's not who I'm going to bless. No, no, just, just bless Ishmael. That's what we do. We bring our Ishmael to God and say, bless it. Bless Ishmael, right? Deception, though, does not begin with the lie itself. It begins, deception begins when you believe it and you lean into it. And that's why it's so dangerous. And we know this is true. This happened well before Paul. Uh, John tells us this. There were people, look, at the same time Jesus was doing signs and wonders, and Jewish leaders were believing in him. But they were afraid of the Pharisees, and so they said nothing because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. In fact, they loved the praise from people more than the praise of God. That's not so far off from where a lot of us are. I'd like to follow God, but I want to make sure that I'm pleasing the people who matter in my life. And so we get deceived. We put our heart into the lie, and then we're capable of anything. The devil's driving at that point. Okay, so jumping up to Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus because he saw the Christians were running off to Damascus. Well, I got to go catch them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill all the leaders. Wipe them out, right? So he goes and says, can I have permission to go and, and start a reign of terror? That's what he's going to do. He's going to pull them out in the middle of the night when they're not expecting it. He's going to drag them back, men or women. Doesn't matter. Men or women. Leave, take mom and dad, leave the kids behind. Doesn't matter. We're going to terrorize these people. We're going to pull them back into Jerusalem where they're either going to recant their belief in Jesus Christ or we're going to kill them right there. That's what we're going to do. And this will stop Christianity. He was convinced of it. So he gets the letters and he's on his way to Damascus and rumors of this have gone ahead because everybody knows who he is. He's done it already in Jerusalem. He has threatened, he has cajoled, he has falsely accused, he has beaten them, he has stoned them, and he has killed them. So he's coming with a resume already intact. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It knocked him off his horse, this bright light. So he knows he's dealing with something very powerful. He says, well, who are you? I don't think I'm persecuting you. Who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Yes, you are persecuting me. And so um, Saul is just blinded by the light. You've heard that expression. This is where it comes from. And he's sitting there. And so then the voice goes on and says, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So they, the men who are traveling with him, and this is like the Bible softening, the men who are traveling with him was an armed force. He was traveling with the Jerusalem's police. The church had their own police force. That'd be so cool if we had our own police force, right? They had their own police force. They were traveling with them. They're like soldiers of the church. And that's who these people are. They're hardened warriors, some of these people. And they were speechless because they heard it, but they didn't see the voice. They're looking around. They're trying to figure out what's going on. But when he gets up, he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. So when Jesus said, you will go in the city, be told what you must do, he was led in the city by his hand because he couldn't see anymore. Now, of course, the symbolism is pretty clear. God struck him blind because he was blind. Deception had blinded him. And so that's why God struck him blind. I said, go there and I'll tell you. So for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. For the same number of times Jesus was in the grave, Saul spent blind in darkness. Now what we don't get to see, because nothing's written, but I would have loved to see 
was a confrontation between the second most brilliant mind of the Bible and the first most brilliant mind of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus explained some things to him. And he connected dots and he showed him things that he was running past in his effort to protect his little world. And it broke him. He understood what Jesus was telling him. But he's sitting there. So then, after this time goes on, Lord goes, and he goes to a disciple named Ananias, and he calls him in a vision, Ananias, and Ananias says, yes, Lord, this blows me away. What would you do if God called you in a vision? It freaked me out. You know, oh, God, God, what? what? You know? This is like so normal to these people that when he says, Ananias, yeah, Lord, it's like nothing to them. It's like, it's like us getting a text message, you know? God Beers in a vision. Oh, yeah, Lord, what do, you, what do you need from me? This must have been happening to these people all the time. I'm saying, that's the Christianity I want, I'll tell you. He says, look, I need you to go to the house of Judas, not, not a scary, it's a different Judas, on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that would be you, to come and place his hands on him to restore sight. Now, I love Ananias. He knows he's talking to God. He knows he's talking to the one who knows everything. But he decides, you know, I better tell him who Saul is because I think he's missed something important here. And he says, um, <clears throat> Lord, um, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you knew this, but rumor has it that he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The problem is he didn't get authority from the high king of heaven and that trumps the high priests. <laughs> and God's like, probably, Ananias, come on. I know that. And then the Lord says to Ananias, go, just go, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. The weird thing about this phrase is Paul does it backwards. <laughs> Pharisees' ways die hard. God says, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles, their kings, and then the Jewish people, and Paul's going to start with the Jews. You know, you can't help yourself. You're a Pharisee. Gentiles are unclean. Eventually, though, he will make it to the Gentiles. But watch this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There is always a price to be paid for deception. In Paul's ministry, he'll be terrorized in the middle of the night. He'll be falsely accused and charged. He will be beaten. He'll be stoned and lives through it. And then he'll be killed. Everything he inflicted on the people of Jesus, he will go through. And Paul's okay with it because he knows Old Testament law. And he knows he deserves it. But what he's going to get that he doesn't deserve is forgiven. And he's going to get a reward in heaven. And if you read Paul's writings, he's always talking about this. The reward before me. I know I'm going to suffer here on earth, but the reward before me. He has this clear, clear picture because Jesus has explained everything to him. But deception comes with a price. If you think that I'm going to just go ahead and live a deceived life and I'm going to go out and do it and later on I'll come back and everything will be okay. It's not. Not only are you going to have a price you're paying during the deception, even after you get cleansed from it, there's a price to pay. Because that's what deception is. And the reason for that is, is because you have put your heart in the deception. And we call that deception. Jesus calls it worshiping other gods. Because you've put your heart into it. That's what we need to understand. And Ananias is going to go on in. He's going to place his hands on him. He's going to say, Brother Saul, Jesus who appeared to you, you must know I'm coming, told me to come and pray for you and heal you uh, and lay my hands on you and you'll be healed. And he does that. And watch, scales fall from Saul's eyes. That's another just beautiful symbolism. It's like, I can see again. And when he opens his eyes, he's a changed man. It takes a while for everybody to understand that. 
but he's a changed man. And he will go out and he will write most of your New Testament. And the things that Paul says, actually, some people are like, oh, I don't know. And Peter has to stand up and say, you know what? Our brother Paul has it right. You need to listen to him. He's hard to listen to sometimes, but you need to listen to Paul because he has it right. God brought him for a reason. He had set him up with all the talents he needed to do what he had to do. I'm going to end. I know it's gone long. But what do you want from your life? Honestly, what do you want for your life? The American dream or God's plan? Are you seeking after what you see as God's blessing in your life? And I just want to go ahead and live my life and have God bless it. That's what I want. The American dream. Let me have it. Or are we saying, you know what? I, I, I want God. I want just God. And if that means I'm in America, hallelujah. But if he moves me away from America, hallelujah. I, I just want God. Whatever that means, I just want God. See, the idea is that when we start really seeking him and just him, and we don't put any conditions on that, and we open up an embassy for heaven in our lives, that we start living the lives like Ananias, where God speaks to you and it's no big deal. <laughs> but we're not seeing that because we're not living that. I've said before, the problem isn't the seed. The seed is still the same as it's always been. The problem is the ground. We have stuff buried. But I think a lot of people would rather have it in an apartment with Christian relics than holy ground where God dwells. I'm going to finalize this with just a little something from somebody who lived in a palace. He was looking around his palace one day. He saw all the great things that God gave him. He said, I don't care about any of this. What he said was, one thing I ask from you, Lord. There's one thing I seek. That's it, one thing. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's not talking about heaven, by the way. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, starting now. I just want you. I've had everything else. I just want you. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to seek him in his temple. I am tired of living in an apartment with relics of heaven. I want the real thing. I want to step on holy ground. And I want to come heart to heart with the living God. Would you all please pray with me?